stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. This is part of us moving together uh, with allies around the world on demonstrating clear and deep consequences for Putin and those who have enabled his regime. Well, welcome to this hour of the program, folks. Rob Breckenridge with you. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking of Warsaw, Poland earlier today. The Prime Minister is uh, on his way back to Ottawa, uh, expected uh, to arrive in the capital uh, in the next uh, 60 to 90 minutes. But earlier today in Poland, announcing new sanctions targeting a key Russian oligarch, Roman Abramovich. The Russian, or rather the British government, has already taken some significant steps to target uh, this particular Russian oligarch. Robin Abramovich owns, is in the process of selling, one of the largest soccer teams in Europe, Chelsea. He's also a major shareholder in Evraz. Now, that's a company that does operate in Canada. In fact, is supplying some of the steel being used to build the Trans Mountain, uh, uh, Trans Mountain Expansion Project. So the Prime Minister's uh, announcement today is indeed significant. This is uh, one of five new Russian oligarchs added to the Canadian sanctions list. So joining us to talk a bit more about some of the the responses so far and how meaningful this all is and why it is important uh, to target not just Putin, but his important allies. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Marcus Kolga, who is founder of DisinfoWatch.org, senior fellow with the McDonald-Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada Interest Abroad. Uh, Marcus Kolga, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on, Rob. When we talk about Russian oligarchs, we're not just talking about Russians who happen to be rich. These are individuals who are very close to Vladimir Putin, who are key allies of Vladimir Putin. First of all, let's start there. Why is it important to to target these individuals? What is their relevance in this whole situation? Oh, that's a great, great question, Rob. Um, these Russian oligarchs, the ones that are making hundreds of or who are worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, um, they all operate, they're allowed to operate uh, in Russia because they have Vladimir Putin's blessing. Um, that means that uh, they've agreed to certain terms with Vladimir Putin. That means um, no interference in Vladimir Putin's politics, which means that they are um, essentially uh, agreeing to enable him and support him politically and keep him in power. Um, you know, and we also know that Vladimir Putin demands a certain cut. Uh, from uh, from these oligarchs, um, you know, anywhere from, you know, uh, some people have said 50 percent to some say 5, 10 percent. Um, but we know that Vladimir Putin is also uh, profiting from these uh, from these oligarchs. And the way that Vladimir Putin is, quite frankly, set up all of this in this entire system is very mafia like. Um, basically, it's like racketeering. If you if you pay Vladimir Putin, then he will protect you and your funds. Um, and this is the way these oligarchs continue doing business and are allowed to continue doing business uh, under um, under the Putin regime in Russia. So what are we hoping that, that targeting them will accomplish? Well, uh, a lot of these oligarchs, like I said, are, are most of them are doing business with Vladimir Putin's blessing. Some of them have been doing this for, you know, 25, 30 years. Um, you mentioned earlier on uh, a name, Roman Abramovich. He was just added uh, to Canada's sanctions list. Um, he's the number one oligarch named by Alexei Navalny. He's an a- Russian anti-corruption crusader. He was named uh, on by Alexei Navalny as the, the top oligarch. If, if Western governments seek to change the behavior and 
uh, Vladimir Putin's behavior, he said that he's Roman Abramovich is the number one oligarch that we want to target. And there are several reasons for that. Um, you know, going back to the late 90, 1990s when uh, when Russia was uh, presided over by its first post-Soviet president, um, Boris Yeltsin, you know, it was the Wild West, and, and a lot of these guys made their money back then. Um, Roman Abramovich was one of those uh, oligarchs who made a lot of money in the metals industry, in the steel industry. Um, and he became quite wealthy by the late 1990s, and when Boris Yeltsin was thinking about retiring. Uh, Abramovich, it's many, many reporters have written that he, uh, he allegedly nominated uh, Vladimir Putin as, uh, as Yeltsin's potential successor. And, uh, you know, that nomination obviously turned out to be, you know, he, uh, Vladimir Putin became the president in 2000 and has, has remained there ever since. And that close relationship, that sort of influence, um, you know, it makes Abramovich a, a prime target for our sanctions. We know that he remains close to Vladimir Putin. Um, and so when we sanction his assets, whether it's in the UK, the Chelsea Football Club, or a brass steel here in Canada, um, freezing those assets sends a message to uh, Abramovich. And the hope, theoretically, is that that will motivate uh, those oligarchs, you know, in this case Abramovich, um, to talk to his friend, Vladimir Putin, to convince him perhaps that the path that he has set Russia on, the, the path that he has set the rest of the world on at the moment, um, and the barbaric invasion that he's engaged in in Ukraine, that maybe he should stop that. Um, and so that's, that's the theory behind sanction, is to change the behavior, um, you know, with, with these oligarchs, and that they will try to urge uh, the leader to change his behavior. And, you know, in the best-case scenario... Um, maybe it will open up the eyes of these oligarchs to try and promote uh, or affect some sort of change in the leadership of their country as well. I mean, there's the other side of it, too. I mean, you know, it's one thing to announce sanctions. It's it's another to, to back them up uh, and to follow through. I know there's been concern mm. maybe that, that Canada doesn't have the legislative teeth to back up some of what we've announced. What What's lacking here in Canada when it comes to, you know, laws targeting corruption and money laundering and, and to be able to make these kinds of announcements really consequential? Well, yeah, again, a very good question. I mean, we need to be make sure that we're able to enforce these these sanctions when we when we put them in place, so that means that uh, at least in the case of Roman Abramovich or any other oligarchs that are sanctioned, that they're no longer able to access the assets they have in this country. Uh, in Abramovich's case, it means that uh, he will be unable to continue profiting uh, from the five steel plants that he has um, he has in this country owned by Avraz, um, and that he's unable to sell them. Um, and so that means you know. Evraz purchased these steel plants in 2004 for an estimated and reported uh, value of $2.4 billion. Um, that's certainly gone up. So that means that that at least 2.4, if not more, saving $3 billion, is now locked in place. He can no longer access those assets. If he wanted to sell the company, he would not be able to receive the profits from that company. But that, of course, does mean... Uh, that we need to enforce that and keep an eye on any sort of transactions that that company makes. Now, there is some legislation in the Senate right now that's moving its way through. I think it's going into second reading in the coming weeks, which would amend uh, and update our sanctioning legislation to allow us to also seize those assets. So in the case of 
um, say any, well, let's not use abroad necessarily, but any company that has its uh, assets frozen by our sanctioning legislation would allow then allow our government to seize those assets and repurpose them. So in the Ukrainian case, any assets that are that are frozen by our sanctioning legislation would allow the government to take that money and then use it to help uh, rebuild Ukraine, help with the relief effort and with, with the refugees. So this is an additional piece of legislation right now that's making its way through through uh, through Parliament. And hopefully it'll it'll get fast tracked so that, you know, we can use some of these funds to help Ukraine uh, because, you know, uh, you, we've all seen the images. Um, the cost of rebuilding Ukraine once this war is over is going to be astronomical. And if we can use some of these corrupt oligarch funds to do that, um, you know, I think that's a good thing for Ukraine and for the, quite frankly, the rest of the Western democratic world. I also want to ask you about, you know, the Russian disinformation machine and, and what you've seen as of late. Is, is the Russians perhaps to get, get yeah. set to escalate uh, things in, in Ukraine? Uh, a lot of concerning signals uh, we're seeing about what the Russians might be up to and, you know, trying to blame the West or trying to blame Ukrainians for what might be to come. What, what are you seeing that's catching your eye? Well, look, it's the, the campaign is relentless, whether it's, you know, efforts to try and justify the war, to villainize the Ukrainians, uh, to villainize our efforts, um, whether it's to the Russians or to ourselves. Um, you know, there's, it's just ongoing. One of the most concerning narratives that we've been detecting, I would say, over the past uh, 48 to 72 hours, uh, this is on Russian state media, both RT and on, on Russian language media. There is this uh, uh, false narrative that uh, the Russian army has has uh, discovered various different sites where they claim that the United States and Ukrainian uh, the Ukrainian government were working together to develop uh, biological weapons and uh, you know this, this this these bases do not exist uh, the US has also they've, they've said that they don't exist the Ukrainians say that they don't exist there's no reason why the United States would have biological uh, weapons development facilities in in Ukraine um, the suspicion from the intelligence community and, uh, and experts on, in the region and certainly on disinformation are, are deeply concerned that these narratives are being placed into, um, you know, Western media, Russian media, uh, because Russia is itself planning to use either chemical weapons or biological weapons on, uh, on urban populations uh, in southern Ukraine, perhaps even Kiev. And, and then use, use this, these stories to blame the United States and Ukraine uh, on that, that the, these, these weapons have been accidentally released or something like that. Those warnings are being amplified right now uh, in the U.S. Uh, there was recent reports that this, this, something like this could be happening. So uh, I'm keeping a very close eye on those narratives and certainly what's, uh, what's going on in Ukraine right now, because it seems like this, this is a, a distinct possibility now. Is there a silver lining, if you can call it that? Does this represent at some level desperation on Putin's part? Does it suggest that obviously his, his efforts in Ukraine have not gone well? The international pressure is far more maybe than he anticipated. Can, can we draw that kind of a conclusion, do you think? Absolutely. Things are not going well for Vladimir Putin. In fact, he, uh, he just fired his uh, intelligence chief from the FSB. This is the successor organization to the Soviet-era KGB, the, the fifth directorate uh, within that organization. This is the, the part of that intelligence, uh, Russian intelligence organization that's responsible for foreign intelligence. Um, 
I just read a report that uh, it appears, and this is this is from these are from Russian experts who are saying that uh, Putin's own intelligence team were just making up intelligence about Ukraine just to keep him happy. And this is one of the reasons why things have gone so well, because his uh, military planners were basing their plans on just false intelligence that was made up by his own people, not to deceive anyone, but just because they were so afraid of displeasing Vladimir Putin. And so, um, you know, this is one of the reasons we've seen, uh, you know, these logistical nightmares that have been happening. Um, there's not enough food for the troops. There's not enough gasoline. Um, tanks are just stopping on the road. Um, they were just completely ill-prepared, and there was, there was no plan. Um, and there's real concern now that there, is, there truly is no plan at this moment. And Vladimir Putin, um, you know, the, the, uh, what we've been seeing in Mariupol with these hospitals being targeted, civilian infrastructure being targeted, um, this is Vladimir Putin lashing out. He's frustrated right now. And that should be deeply concerning for everyone because, of course, you know, we don't want to cause any panic, but he does have nuclear weapons. Um, and there have been concerns that he might use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And, of course, going back to what we were talking about earlier, chemical or biological weapons um, are, are a possibility as well at this point because he has no plan. The plan that he had didn't work out. He has no plan now. We don't even – I don't think he knows what his, what his objectives are at this point. Um, he just needs – he's in a corner. He's lashing out. And, uh, you know, the Western world needs to be prepared for what's coming next. Absolutely. We'll leave it there. Much more at uh, disinfowatch.org and, of course, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, Mark, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thanks so much, Rob. All the best. Uh, that is Marcus Kolga. He's a senior uh, fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute's Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad, founder of disinfowatch.org. We are conservatives, and I am running as a conservative. And what does that mean? I was in the media today saying to the Quebec media that being a conservative is about fiscal conservatism, something I practiced all my life. Well, that was uh, Jean Charest, former Quebec premier, former PC party leader, speaking last night in Calgary, launching his campaign to be the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. September 10th is when the conservatives will choose a new leader. And this is an important moment for the party. Having gone through two leaders in, in, in short order, having lost three elections in a row, uh, there's a need for some, some soul-searching here. What do the conservatives want to be? What does it mean to be a conservative, as Jean Charest alluded to in that question? Look, it's going to be a competitive race, I, I think. I don't know if it's going to be an easy uh, stroll for Pierre Polyev as much as he is the prohibitive favorite here. But I think there's an opportunity for some competing visions to be laid out for where this party is going, for what this party represents, what it stands for, the vision it has for Canada. It's not enough just to, to be the loudest or just to be the one who hates Justin Trudeau and the liberals the most. It's got to be about ideas and vision, doesn't it? So we'll see if this race does deliver that. Certainly, I think there's some uh, sharp contrast between the two front runners. An interesting piece in the Globe and Mail today on uh, a call for the conservatives uh, to, to be serious, that serious times need serious leaders. And can this leadership race focus on those issues? Joining us to talk more about it is Globe and Mail columnist Andrew Coyne, theglobeandmail.com. Much more, of course. Andrew, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Rob. What do you see as, as the difference here for the conservatives coming off a, a leadership race not too long ago, a leadership race before that not too long ago? 
what's at stake this time, how these times right now, everything we're dealing with at the moment is, is different? The stakes are enormously high for the party and for the country. Uh, for the party, they are in a better position or would seem to be to challenge for power than they've been in some time. Uh, they've, they've come close in a couple of elections. So there's no doubt that they're choosing a potentially a future prime minister if they, you know, if they get their act together. Um, and usually, yes, I would say uh, uh, leadership races, as you were suggesting, are times in which a party um, can define itself, can have thrash out these big debates and figure out what it stands for. And I've long, that's been a position of mine, the Conservative Party uh, has to stop either apologizing for itself and just imitating the Liberals, as some urge upon them, or adopting kind of these, these uh, manic populist positions that aren't really relevant to the public at large, but satisfy the base, particularly satisfy the base's urge to own the libs, as they say, to do things that just basically annoy liberals or annoy centrists, uh, but aren't really relevant to the voters at large. These kind of hobby horse issues that too many of the party are too often uh, too ready to indulge in. Uh, and you're certainly going to see a lot of people in the course of this race, um, demanding that that, that 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 one or another of those courses be taken, either that they they need to quote move to the middle. You hear you'll hear a lot of the pundits saying that kind of thing, yeah. uh, or you'll you'll hear people saying, "No, uh, 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 the thing we have to do is just retreat further into the kind of populism that some of us, some of the party has been uh, been uh, too prone to in the past." And I would be very distressed if they do either of those things. I don't think they're helping the country if they do that. I do think they should be taking strong and distinct distinctly conservative stands on issues that matter to the country, on the economy, uh, on defense, particularly nowadays is such an important issue on the, our democratic institutions and so on and so forth. So that's the first point. But my second point is, and more the point of the column is, we are living in times now where I think the leadership part of a leadership race really comes to the fore. Uh, we, we, we are in a crisis right now, an international crisis, the likes of which I have not seen in my life. Mm-hmm. And we are in for some very perilous times, I think, in the next weeks and months and even years. Uh, and there's never in my lifetime has it been more important that we have not only leadership in the prime minister's office, and we can debate whether or not we think that we're getting the, the appropriate leadership we need, but also in, in the leader of the opposition's office, in the prime minister-in-waiting's office, if you will. And so more than in most leadership races, I think that really has to weigh, should weigh, on the minds of conservative voters, uh, I mean, they should always be trying to pick a future prime minister. They should always be picking somebody that should be part of their decision-making calculus is, can the public look at this person and, and see a future prime minister in them? But they absolutely, I think, uh, owe it to themselves, owe it to the country to be picking somebody who has the maturity and the judgment and the, and the, the character um, um, to, to lead the country uh, in, in the kinds of very, very dangerous times that we're now in. Well, further to that, then, to what extent do non-conservatives or, or non-conservative partisans have a vested interest in this? Why, why does this matter, then, to those who are not card-carrying conservatives and will be voting in this race? Well, that's a very good question, because I would say even if you were a card-carrying liberal and, and you had the best interests of the country at heart, you would want somebody who could challenge the, the government, who could provide effective opposition, uh, who could make them uh, up their game. Uh, and, and if necessary, uh, um, step in to, to replace them. So all of us, whatever our, 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 um, our partisan affiliations or otherwise, uh, should want to have a contestable system, should want to have a system where 
whoever's in power uh, should be worried uh, that if they don't measure up, they're going to be out in their ear in the next election. And, you know, the Conservatives have not been doing as good a job at that as they should have been. Uh, Justin Trudeau, I think, was very vulnerable in both of the last two elections, and uh, the Conservatives were unable to to unseat him for various reasons we can go into. Um, but uh, I think whatever your partisan strikes, that, that, that should be, uh, people should be cheering for a contestable uh, democratic system. Well, and, and through that partisan lens, I think people are going to see this differently. I suppose liberals might might accuse you of suggesting that there is a leadership void, that, that we're not getting leadership from, from the current uh, occupant uh, of the prime minister's office. I, I think conservative partisans are going to see this as an indictment uh, of those who have put their name forward to, to try to lead this party. I mean, are, are they both wrong? Are they both right? Or is it just the, the distortion of the, the partisan lens? I think they're both right in a sense. I, uh, you, you know, one can make a lot of criticism of this prime minister and the team around him. I do not think they have, I think that oftentimes they have not provided really serious leadership for the country. And that's a whole debate. And, and, but I, you know, the point of this piece was to look at the, the people who are vying to replace him. And what I would say is, um, the prime minister is at least a known quantity and has at least had, have had to suffer the discipline of power, as Jeffrey Simpson called it, that, that, you know, once you are in power, the, you, you have to smarten up to some extent because all the weight of the decision-making of the country is upon you. And we can judge him by his results. And as I say, he's had some pluses and some minuses. But meantime, while he's been making mistakes and, 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 being, and presenting a vulnerable target to, a, to an opposition that had its act together, too often the Conservative Party, large sections of the Conservative Party, and some of the contenders for, for the leadership of the Conservative Party – have been frittering away time and resources on, as I say, issues in which either are not particularly relevant to the public or where they've been taking um, irresponsible and, and, and uh, nonsensical positions. I do not think it was a service to the country for Pierre Polyever, for example, to be cheering on the people who occupied Ottawa. I don't think that was the position of a responsible adult who would like to govern the country to be endorsing basically lawlessness. Um, and, you know, getting into these kind of conspiracy theories about is the World Economic Forum running our country or this kind of nonsense. Right. Uh, this is not adult behavior. This is not the conduct of a serious party of government. Uh, and, and, and it's it's just it's self-indulgent. And it ultimately winds up giving Pierre, uh, <laughs> there's a Korean slip, Justin Trudeau, a pass. There are a lot of people who would vote against this government if they had the slightest excuse, if they had any confidence that the people who were in best place to replace them, uh, could provide uh, serious and competent government. And if the Conservatives can't um, uh, uh, reassure those voters, then they're not only letting themselves down, they're letting the country down. It was interesting to note this week, Michael Chong, who I think is a, a serious individual, who, who takes matters certainly of foreign policy very seriously. And, and I think, you know, Canadian politics is lucky to have people like that. He's opted not to run in the Conservative leadership race. And, and Look, obviously, that's a personal decision on his part, but it does suggest maybe that that those who take things seriously, that that's not a path to victory. That politics today doesn't reward that approach. Is is there something to that? I'm afraid you're right. It, it's um, uh, you know we are we have been certainly in an age when um, serious politics was kind of out of fashion. I think part of that was that that. You know, Canadians, I mean, you've seen some of this around the democratic world in the last decade or so, where people just decided that politics didn't really matter. It didn't matter who was in power. It was all just for show or entertainment or 
an opportunity to kind of, you know, stick the boot into people you don't like, et cetera. And so people thought we could, it didn't matter, as I say. And in Canada, I think we've, on top of that, we've kind of assumed, well, you know, we're the lucky country. You know, the Australians call themselves that, but we're really the lucky country. Here we are, you know, we, we've got all our defense basically paid for by the Americans. We, 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 we get to trade with them and grow rich off of them. We're big. We're, we're separated by, by oceans from the rest of the world. We have no natural predators. So it doesn't really matter who we elect either. And I think the whole world, and Canada included, is, you know, reality has come crashing back in. Uh, that we are back now, we're into actually a more frightening scenario than we were during the Cold War, frankly. And so now it really does matter uh, who is in power. And maybe, just maybe, uh, the, the electorate will be in more of a, of a frame of mind uh, to elect people, you know, who are serious people with the ability to uh, protect them uh, and keep them safe uh, in a very dangerous world. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, and that means having people with good judgment and nerves of steel and all the things that, that you need uh, uh, to, to, to make decisions in that kind of complicated and dangerous and, and, and tense situation. So uh, whether that will include uh, conservative party voters uh, uh, in this race will certainly not something to be seen. And we'll see what the what the campaign looks like. Do they actually engage in debates about serious issues that test the knowledge and the ability of all the candidates? Or does it become the usual nonsense about, uh, you know, wedge issues and, and goo of various kinds? And, and Or does it just become a matter of who can sell the most memberships, which I'm, I'm afraid it may turn out to be a, a rather grubby, uh, uh, um, you know, membership drive. Um, but the, 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 the test of it all will be what do they finally come up with in the end? What, who do they choose as leader and what sort of person is that? Well, we got five months to find out. Uh, your latest is mentioned up at theglobeandmail.com. Andrew Coyne, thanks for joining us here today. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Rob. Thank you. All the best. Andrew Coyne, columnist for the Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com, his latest uh, calling of the conservatives to, to be more serious about politics. Is that uh, necessary or is, is that an unfair characterization of where the party's at? So five months for these leadership contenders to demonstrate uh, that when it comes to serious times, they can provide serious leadership to have some meaningful conversation about, you know, the changing world we're living in, the very dangerous world we're living in. I think as Andrew Coyne said, this has been a very big wake up call for a very complacent country. And look, as much as some people are th- accusing Andrew Coyne of, of beating up on the conservatives here, I do think part of it is and maybe that's true at some level. But I think it's it's kind of a pox in all the houses here because. We're not getting that serious leadership right now, I don't think. So maybe there is that, that moment of opportunity here for the conservatives to, to show that they're the ones capable of that. Well, the big announcement earlier this week from the premier, of course, uh, that there was going to be um, a holiday, a temporary pause of Alberta's gasoline excise tax, 13 cents a litre. Uh, As of April 1st, that will be removed and will stay off, the premier says, until oil prices, until and unless oil prices dip below $80 a barrel. Now, it's likely we'll see some further price fluctuations between now and April 1st. So it's unclear how much we'll be paying at the pump, but the tax will be removed. So I guess any posted price will be about 13 cents less than it otherwise would have been, at least theoretically. That was one announcement from the premier. Uh, the other was a total of $150, $50 over three months, uh, a credit on household electricity bills. 
So what does all of this mean to the Alberta government's bottom line? What does this all mean to the bottom line of Alberta households? There's a new analysis up at policyschool.ca, the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Uh, Trevor Toome is co-author of this piece. He's an associate professor of economics at the U of C and a research fellow of the School of Public Policy. Trevor, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Good afternoon. Uh, so in terms of quantifying, I guess, the, the cost to the Alberta government or what this is going to represent in terms of lost revenues, I, I suppose that's that's fairly straightforward. But what, what do we have in terms of estimates on that? Yes, you're right. It's pretty straightforward. We know what we raise in gasoline tax revenue month to month, and we, we know how much the bill credit is going to be because it's just a simple $50 per month times three months times how many utility bills there are out there. So it's, it's pretty simple to get a, a rough estimate of this. And our analysis suggests it's on the order of about five to $600 million for the the first three months, and the suspension of the provincial gasoline tax may continue past July 1. It really does depend on what happens to oil prices, and each additional quarter, so each additional three months, would cost the government an additional $325 million or so. Because it's a it's a set rate, it's 13 cents a liter, it's not a percentage of the price, so right. whatever the price is, I, I suppose, is somewhat irrelevant in the amount of revenue that brings in, but, you know, supply and demand, how much oil or how much gasoline Albertans are consuming, that might impact how much the tax raises. So yeah. how much does the fluctuation in price become relevant in, in the revenue side? Yeah, you're absolutely right that when the price goes up, uh, the quantity demanded of gasoline is going to tend to fall. You know, not a lot. I mean, the demand for gasoline is pretty insensitive to price, but not perfectly so. And mm-hmm. because uh, of that higher price leading to potentially less gasoline purchased, uh, that does decrease the amount of foregone revenue that this tax holiday represents. Of course, the tax holiday itself, like lowering that 13 cent a liter tax to zero, will have the reverse effect, slightly increasing the, the quantity demanded of gasoline than would have otherwise have, have been the case. Yeah, a lot of these fiscal cost estimates are going to have some margin of error uh, around them, certainly, but not, not very large. So we have a very good sense of, of roughly where this is going to shake out in terms of the, the government's bottom line. We also have a good sense of what this is going to mean for individuals in terms of savings. And our analysis kind of breaks that down by household. Of course, it depends how much gasoline you actually buy. Uh, But on average, uh, it's going to save the typical family about $130 in that first quarter. And then, you know, that much more, uh, depending on how much longer the holiday lasts. Interesting. So, yeah, obviously, there are differences in households when it comes to fuel use right. and, and you know, what percentage of income this, these savings represent. But on average, how much gasoline do, do Alberta households consume each month? Yeah, on average, about 200 liters. And you're right, there's huge variation, of course, across households. Some consume uh, very little, some a lot more. It really depends on your commuting patterns, how many kids you have in particular, maybe you have multiple vehicles and so on. Yeah, 200 liters per month is kind of the typical amount. Uh, that uh, that we see used in Alberta. That does correlate with household income. So it tends to be the case that higher income families use more gasoline uh, than lower income families. Maybe they're the ones who disproportionately drive relative to uh, public transit or multiple vehicles, bigger vehicles, and so on. And so the savings are correlated with income too. And we estimate about $70 per quarter for families earning less than $30,000 per year. And that rises to about $220 on average for families earning more than 150000 a year. 
Well, it's interesting because based on that, it might seem on the surface that this is what yeah. one would describe as a regressive tax cut. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in, in this analysis, you argue that, that it's the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So the, the dollars saved does rise with income, but rises more slowly uh, with income. So as a proportion of your overall household budget, these savings are significantly larger for lower income families. So as a, as a share of your overall income, it's roughly triple uh, the, the value to your household's bottom line compared to families earning those higher income levels. And, and that's kind of the flip side of uh, these kind of taxes being regressive or energy prices affecting lower income households more. And so when we lower the tax, it's going to have that opposite effect of uh, on a relative basis, uh, advantaging the lower-income families more. And so in that sense, it's progressive in, the, in, in that technical sense. Interesting. Now, can we compare this, is it possible to compare this to, to other approaches that the government might have taken here mm. in terms of maybe direct subsidies to consumers or some kind of intervention to subsidize you know, the wholesale price or, or to subsidize retailers? How does this approach that the government has, has selected here compare to maybe some of those other options? Yeah. Great question, and always an important one when thinking about policy, because the government usually has lots of alternatives that it could have pursued. You know, this one is a mixture of lowering the price of gasoline through the tax rate reduction and a lump sum cash transfer to household on the on the electricity bill. Right. You could imagine the government instead could have provided roughly double the electricity bill credits, just transfer $100 per month to everyone on their bill rather than 50 um, That has some pros and cons, or you could imagine having uh, cash transfers provided through the tax system, like uh, the current carbon tax rebate, for example. Or you could make these cash transfers means-tested, where you give larger cash transfers to lower-income families. Or or, I guess, you know, bring back the, the notion of Ralph Bucks, recognizing that when oil prices are high, you know, and each $1 change per barrel is $500 million to the government's bottom line, just simply uh, rebate a big chunk of that increased resource revenues to households to cushion them from the higher energy prices. So lots of alternatives to, uh, to consider. And I guess where um, I come down on this is that affordability concerns are really best addressed through those cash transfers rather than changing the price of fuel itself. The market right now is so weird, and obviously this is a globally traded commodity, so there's a limit to the extent to which any Alberta policy decision can affect that. But should that be considered? Do, do any of these policy approaches have a distortionary effect on the market? Well, I mean, all taxes change behavior, and therefore all taxes have some distortion on how markets operate, including gasoline taxes. And so this is not uh, a subsidy. It's a reduction in a tax. And so in a sense, maybe you're easing some pre-existing distortion. But since using gasoline has implications for wear on, on roads, for local air pollution, for congestion, the gasoline tax itself is one way to use a, what we call a market-based approach to correct those externalities. You know, your driving affects others. And so by lowering that gasoline tax, you might be exacerbating uh, those distortions. Um, and so there, there are some drawbacks here, and that's, I guess, why I prefer the, the cash transfer instead of lowering the gasoline tax. Because on the supply and demand side, I don't know to what extent the government has, has a lot of control at the moment. I mean, you know, we could leave the tax in place, and maybe that helps to, to temper demand. On the other hand, maybe we find more ways of incentivizing 
uh, refining or or getting more product to the market. I don't know how easy that is to do, which could affect the price as well. But is that a a, a less direct way or maybe a a more difficult way of, of providing some relief? Well, it's certainly a slower way. You know, those are things that wouldn't uh, be able to come on the scene in a matter of weeks, like this policy is. Um, and, and there's some good reasons why we don't refine more here in Alberta, and that's for the simple fact that you know, wages are, are high. It's often not, e- not economic for investors to build those kind of facilities. That's why we specialize more in the raw extraction for exports. So economically speaking, it would not be a good idea for the government to subsidize uh, increased refining operations here in Alberta. Um, but that's a longer-term question. I think it's it's certainly a completely valid policy objective for governments to respond to these short-term pressures um, from uh, very rapidly changing energy prices. And so there, uh, I think the policy does need to be short-term and a kind of a rapid response in order to offset those pressures rather than these longer-term um, options that that people might consider. Well, much more. Uh, This analysis, it's up at policyschool.ca. Trevor, always appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Trevor Toome, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy and co-author of this uh, analysis, Making Sense of Alberta's Fuel Tax Holiday and Electricity Bill Credit. So as best as they can determine, uh, Trevor Toome and uh, Professor Jennifer Winter, the average household purchases about 200 liters of gasoline per month. And obviously that, that varies from household to household. They say, we estimate the direct and indirect provincial gasoline tax savings range from $70 per quarter uh, to families earning less than $30,000 a year to nearly $220 for families earning more than $150,000. But as he argued, that, that this is still a progressive kind of approach here because for the lower income families, that benefits, the benefit represents a bigger fraction of their income. So maybe that's the way to look at it. But it's not surprising then that uh, higher income households uh, would consume more gasoline and just in terms of sheer dollars then would benefit more. But when you look at it in that sense, there is some progressivity to it, if that's something that matters to you. They also say we estimate the cost of this policy at $600 million for the first quarter, $325 million for each additional quarter that the fuel tax is suspended. But they say relative to the government's rising uh, natural resource revenues, this cost is modest. High oil prices mean significant increases in those revenues. Each $1 increase in the price of a barrel of oil yields $125 million per quarter. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.